This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. Leeson, have I ever told you what beautiful eyes you have? Oh, Trevor, I've been waiting for this moment for, for so long. They're just so deep and dark and mysterious. Nobody's ever said that to me before, Trevor. Oh, Leeson, you have such dark eyes. episode of the Doctor Who podcast. I have no idea what number it is. Let's just leave that up in the lap of the gods. But suffice to say, I have the wonderful Michelle and the wonderful Leeson here with me in the camper van to talk Doctor Who. Hello, guys. Hello, hello. Hello, Trevor. It's, it's very nice to be here again. And I'd just like to point out that finally I have DWP camper van bingo. Leeson has been on this show for 18 months now, by my count, and this is the first time we have inhabited the camper van together. Congratulations. Well done. I mean, there has been a reason why we've kept you two apart, but I don't think the listeners are ready for that reason yet. But suffice to say, it's great to have you both, in fact, all three of us in this uh, virtual camper van here, talk about everyone's favourite subject, Doctor Who. And not only Doctor Who, but Big Finish Doctor Who, which I always like uh, I always like it when we, when we delve into the Big Finish canon. I tell you, I mean, I, I suppose we're now in that, uh, you know, period of Doctor Who where we're in the desert where we're in, you know, no man's land, where there's no televised Doctor Who, and we have to rely on those fantastic people at Big Finish who don't take holidays, who don't release, you know, two stories a year and then take eight months off, who just keep producing Doctor Who in audio format month after month after month. We've chosen a fantastic series of stories to talk about today. It was released, uh, I believe, at the end of last year, November 2012, the return of Paul McGann to the Big Finish oeuvre in his uh, uh, Dark Eyes persona. Mm, a fabulous box set and uh, an expansive box set. It's three and a half hours of, of adventure. I think was this. Uh, I think this was uh, one of the first box sets that uh, that Big Finish uh, released, and they've gone on to do other ones. Initially, I thought, uh, is this just a way of getting uh, a bigger lump sum out of us? You know, um, paying upfront for a, for a box set rather than perhaps sort of delving into stories. But uh, when I when I finally delved into it, I. Oh, I was so pleased they put it in a, into a box. I was so pleased that I had the whole thing to consume because I consumed episode after episode after episode. Uh, I, as each one ended, I, I found time to listen to the next one. It, was, it, it really got its hooks into you. It was an interesting way for Big Finish to go because I suppose chronologically, if we look at the Paul McGann Doctor's stories, this takes place pretty much straight after you know the epic conclusion to the Lucy Miller saga, basically, and all the stuff that went on with uh, you know his his granddaughter Susan and Tasman and you know the Doctor's great grandson Alex. I suppose a lot of fans were thinking maybe Dark Eyes would be the follow-on from the end of that season, but they've taken a really interesting direction with Dark Eyes, still very 
uh, faithful to where we ended up into the death, but taking the Paul McGann doctor in a very different direction. Yeah, and it's important because it follows on so closely from Lucy Miller into the death. We should mention that this is going to be a pretty spoiler-heavy discussion. There, mm. there, there's really no mm. way to, to discuss this without talking about the events from To the Death, and no way to, to t- talk about this without delving into the finer plot points, really, of Dark Eyes as we go through this story. Spoiler! Spoiler! Because, uh, as you say, it follows on directly from To the Death, uh, where, first spoiler alert, um, Lucy Miller uh, dies, which uh, leaves the um, leaves the Eighth Doctor in a, in a rather dark place. And, and where this story picks up, uh, the, the Doctor is alone, and this is a wonderful scene. This was the first hook that, that got me that got me uh, hooked into this into this story. Where he's, he's alone in the TARDIS, and he's trying to take the TARDIS to the end of the universe, to the end of everything, simply so he can look back and get some perspective. And there's a wonderful speech delivered absolutely beautifully by, by Paul McGann, um, where he's, he's saying in, to, to a mysterious Time Lord who appears in the TARDIS, uh, as the TARDIS is refusing to take him to the end of the universe so he can, he can get this perspective. And he just wanted to go to the end of the universe and look back just to try and get some hope, just to see that maybe yeah. things turn out all right. In fact, perhaps... Q segment from the actual audio play we're talking about. Was it Susan? Hmm? Did she betray me? Betray you? Well, she loves you, Doctor. You must know that. Uh, so much for love, Strax. What did love ever do for Susan? Or Lucy? It left them grieving or dead. Because the universe in its infinite wisdom gives way to creatures like the Daleks. Well, do you blame the universe? Then who? What? Who's to blame? So, you set course for the end of everything... Did you really think we wouldn't notice a TARDIS tearing through the vortex, heading to a time and place beyond all that we forbid? You forbid us from seeing the ultimate end of the universe? Why? That knowledge is forbidden. Why did you want to go there? Perspective. I'm told it's a wonderful view. (laughs) No, I mean it. I really hoped it would be a wonderful view. To look back from the end of everything. To see how things finally turned out. Straxus, I was looking for hope. Ah, <laughs> that. Are you telling me I wouldn't have found any? I honestly don't know, Doctor. You're exactly right, Lisa. And one, one word you picked out there that I think is one of the themes of the Dark Eyes series is the theme of hope. And it's used to various, I suppose, different permutations depending on what character you're talking about. But certainly for the Paul McGann Doctor... It's the hope that somewhere, somehow, the universe will redeem itself, that he can go to the end of the universe, the end of time itself, and look back and go, maybe what I've been doing all this time has some reason, has some meaning, that all these deaths, all this struggle that's consumed his life can somehow have some purpose, that there is some meaning to what he's been doing. No, and he doesn't quite get to the end of time because the journey is interrupted by Straxus, the Time Lord, who uh, gives him a mission, which apparently is enough to to keep him going for the duration of the story here. And he, he leaps from one war that he's been participating in, you know, back to the Lucy Miller to the death stuff, where three out of four of his companions actually died at the end of that, so so terribly bleak. And and the next place we find him is in World War One, uh, you know, on the front lines, and and thrown right into another extremely bleak uh, setting and. Ex- Extremely bleak story, looking for uh, looking for a girl, really. An impossible girl. Did anyone as 
I, I listened to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, ab- I li- I mean, absolutely. I, I listened to this nine months ago, and uh, and it was a wonderful story. And and then I watched um, uh, series seven B, uh, and it wasn't until I came to listen to Dark Eyes again that I went, oh, this this is an- another thread that I think may have consciously or unconsciously been picked up by the new series. Yeah, because the the reason he goes back and the mission he has given is a, is a DNA trace uh, of a of a of a girl that shouldn't be or an Im- impossible girl. Uh, so he goes off in search of uh, oh I forget her name Molly Sullivan who is a wonderful, wonderful Doctor Who companion. Uh, one of the best, I think, that uh, Big Finish have produced and played beautifully. By Ruth Bradley, yes. And, and one mm. of the neat things about Molly O'Sullivan is she's refreshingly different. I mean, aside from the fact that, yes, as we go through this, there are these parallels to Clara. She's Irish, which is nice. I don't think we've had an Irish companion for the Doctor before. The fact that she's from the World War I uh, era gives her some, some interesting perspective. Uh, she's very sparky. I love the way she and Paul McGann play off each other. Definitely different dynamic from what he had with either Lucy or Charlie. And that, that's one of the strengths of the series, really, is, is uh, Molly O'Sullivan, or Dark Eyes, as he calls her, uh, and the way they work together throughout the, the four stories. Mm, and, the way, and the way she does work to, w- w- together with him is that she takes none of his flannel. She falls for none of his charm. She, uh, and, and that doesn't really abate for the, for the whole... Um, I mean, even as she becomes aware of who he is and is following him around. Uh, she, she she never really takes any of uh, any of the flannel, and she has some quite uh, uh, quite harsh Irish put downs for him. Um, one of which is refusing to call his TARDIS the TARDIS and, and referring to it as a tardy box. Well, and likewise, she she refuses to call him Doctor. He introduces himself as the Doctor, which she thinks sounds like a bad stage name. And so repeatedly throughout the story, she refers to him as the Doctor as the full mm. title. Um, and and of course he deems her dark eyes fairly quickly on for obvious reasons and uh, so there's this ongoing battle of the names as they go through well one of the strengths of having a single author write all four stories and that's nicholas briggs of course uh is that you can you can seed these little themes and hints and then uh, play on the themes as you go through all four stories and and i think i think this does very well it's interesting too i mean with with these four stories that make up this box set which has the overarching title of Dark Eyes, you can almost listen to each four independently. Certainly the first part, The Great War, which has the Doctor thrust into a World War One situation where he meets Molly and has to help out a train that uh, is, is in danger of becoming derailed during that conflict, certainly is a wonderful setup for the rest of the parts in this series and, and can be listened to quite independently from the other parts and and that's even continued on i mean each part although it does contribute to the overall story arc which we may talk about soon certainly have enough in them that they can be listened to totally separately from each other and you know you can you can pretty much listen to part three before you listen to part two or even part one really Mm, and what what strikes me about uh, certainly about about part one is is uh, is how immersive it is when you when you get to the first world war setting uh, you, you really, really feel and smell uh, and get a sense of of, of the place that, that, you, that you're in. It's beautifully realised mm. with the sound design. Uh, and obviously Paul, Paul McGann has, uh, has a personal interest in, in um, the First World War. Even the scenes where, he, where he's, he's first arrived and he's, uh, he's trudging across no man's land and he's uh, singing It's a Long Way to Tipperary. You just you really <laughs> feel as, as, as though you're there. And, and Paul McGann's performance in this is... 
is superb. It makes me ache to see him uh, in the 50th, but uh, that's, uh, that's a different matter. He was really, really good in this. And, and one thing I didn't realise at the time, but only found out um, on subsequent research for this episode, was remember about 18 months or two years ago, McGann appeared at a convention with this new costume for the Doctor. Hmm. And it, it was his way, I think, of promoting the Eighth Doctor and Big Finish and also for him to get into a different mindset about where his characterization of the Eighth Doctor was going. Mm. Dark Eyes is the result of this new direction for the Eighth Doctor. We, we can still see a lot of the stuff we've loved about, uh, you know, the McGann characterization from the TV movie and from the series he's done up till now. But dare I say it, the, you know, the, the Eighth Doctor is a darker Doctor in this. He, he's, he's dealing with a lot more, I suppose, personal issues in this story. And that's also reflected uh, in, in his much darker costume with the leather jacket and, you know, the much more, I suppose, Eccleston-type look. It's funny, though. I, I mean, I, I've listened to this quite keenly, and, and one of the things I was first listening for when, when, uh, upon first listen was, was references to the new uh, costume. And there are references to the old costume. Um, I know, in, I know. In, in the first episode, she says, is uh, the one over there, you can't miss him, he's uh, the one in the velvet jacket and the long hair. So I... I I don't know, and he appears on the front cover, as, as you say, with um, you know, with the, with the new costume. But the, all of yeah. the references to his appearance are, are the old costume, uh, which which is bizarre. And I was expecting towards the end some kind of scene where he picks out a new costume, and 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 it's not there. Couple thoughts on that. One is that it's made very clear in the early parts of the story, namely this first episode in the, in the mud and the muck of, of World War One, and then uh, they end up actually uh, in the next episode giving a brief visit to World War II and being in the water. And, and it's clear that his costume is filthy and, and disheveled and, and perhaps partially ripped and destroyed. So the you can kind of assume that at some point when he's back in the TARDIS, he, he changes into something a little bit cleaner. But I'm not sure, even, even though the seeds are kind of there for the costume change, I'm not sure at the time Nick wrote this that they actually had confirmation and approval from the BBC that, that the new costume would be accepted. And so I think that may play, play into why it's fair subtle. However, in, I understand in the sound design from the time that theoretically he changes into the new costume, there's supposed to be sound design that would indicate, you know, leather moving instead of velvet moving. Now, having listened to it twice, I, I couldn't pick up on that. But certainly this this story, this epic, documents the transformation from the lighter, fluffier uh, McGann doctor that we had before he really goes through the traumatic experiences of, of to the death and, and enters into this. So, mm, and of course, the dark has really comes after there were uh, there was sort of uh, there were the stories that went back and he was sort of, uh, traveling with Mary Shelley, which were back to the um, to the earlier uh, Eighth Doctor. They sort of took a trip back in between, didn't they, and did three stories uh, where you had the sort of the, yeah, as you say, the, the lighter um, Eighth Doctor, and then then we came back to this. Uh, and I, say, I have to say I much prefer this um, this interpretation of the Eighth Doctor, and it it sounds to me as though Paul McGann himself uh, is is pleased to have been able to move the character on. Uh, and is, is sort of relishing in playing it ever so slightly different. I was a little concerned about it going into this story because very much the publicity was about the Darker Doctor and they had this beautiful front cover of Doctor Who magazine with the Darker Doctor. But And I, I happen to like kind of the childlike innocence of the Eighth Doctor. That's one of my favorite things about him. Fortunately, as, as you go into this, while he's 
dealing with the emotional aftermath of, of what's happened, don't be scared away by thinking he's he's completely dark and that it's miserable and, and heavy and, and a slog all the way through. It's not that at all. Um, he, he's trying to come to terms with, with what's happened, but uh, there's still the charm. The, ch- the charm is still still underlies it. Yeah, and the, the, child, the childlike wonder of having this, this new mystery. I mean, he, he genuinely gets his hope, and he he's almost sidetracked uh, like a child by uh, the bright new shiny mystery. Uh, and uh, he, he really relishes having this this mystery to unpick. One of the things that I've always uh, that has appealed to me about the concept of the Paul McGann doctor being the one that has to make the tough decisions in the time war was his innocence and 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 his upbeat personality and his his childlike look at life. And to think of this uh, sort of most innocent of doctors being the one that had to make whatever decisions or take whatever actions presumably led to the destruction of both the Time Lords and almost of the Daleks. To me, that 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 contradiction was very fraught dramatically. I, I always thought that that was an amazing thing. So while I appreciate a lot of what's done in this story and kind of taking him in a darker direction, in a way for me, it, it diminishes this idea of, of the innocence of the Paul McGann doctor having to make the really horrible decisions in the time war. But that's kind of a minor thing. This story, what what this story is doing is is, uh, done very effectively. But certainly by the end of this story of Dark Eyes, um, having him in a little bit more hardened and darker place, you see him taking a few steps towards probably being able to make that decision in the future. back home. Too hot. So what you make of these big grey mounds we keep passing? And don't be telling me they're giant other worlds, ants nests or the like. Oh, come on, come up here with me to the top. Uh, okay. Oh, look down there. What do you make of that? A big hole in the ground. Goes a long way down. Yes, anything else? Whew. The air coming out of it is hot and smelly. It's a vent. There's something deep underground, something hot, industrial, technological. Factories for making this weapon we're looking for. What else? What do you think it is? Like a big cannon or something? I doubt it. You should get down from there. Are they friendly? They don't look friendly. They look hungry and not altogether happy with their lot. Why don't we diverge a little bit and talk about I suppose the story itself, just not the individual parts, mm-hmm. but some of the the overarching story that covers these entire four episodes. I, I, I suppose the reason why we're listening to it to get from the beginning of the Great War to the end of X of the Daleks and have a, a satisfying story across these, as, as Leeson said, three and a half hours. I, I just want to pose a question to you guys to see if I understand what Dark Eyes was about. And we're into... Heavy spoiler territory here, guys, so um, please be warned. We are going to be revealing massive plot points, so if you haven't listened to it, turn off now and go listen to Radio Free Scarrow or something. (laughs) Um, From what I understand, we have the renegade Time Lord uh, basically engineering Molly when she was two years old to eventually meet up with the Doctor. The Doctor and Molly have to travel together so Molly can be infused with the time particles necessary due to time travel so that it can basically kickstart this great machine that our evil Time Lord X Mm -hmm. or Cotras is creating to bring an end to the Time Lords. Is that an easy 15-second summation of Dark Eyes? That just about sums it up, yeah. Yeah, close. Um, I would say that they actually 
shot the particles into her. That that was done. She doesn't kind of. They were they were already in her. They did that with oh, one of the devices that they had there on the planet. And so the important thing of bringing her together with the doctor is that she has to be in close proximity to a time lord for the for the particles, the retro retrogenitive particles, <laughs> to uh, to kind of sync with Time Lord DNA so that later on when they activate the device, uh, those things can, oh, corkscrew back through time, I think they talked about, and, and unevolve the entire Time Lord race, removing Time Lords from history, which is, you know, as a side effect, uh, kind of a side note, it's interesting. You must therefore assume, I think, that the Doctor is fully Time Lord and not half human. Mm. <laughs> or, I, or or I don't Ooh, I don't think I don't way. think the premise would work if that weren't true. But but yeah, I think that was the scheme of uh, the Dalek time controller with the assistance of Cotris um, was to do that. So so that Molly becomes this weapon. Yeah, that mm. could then infuse this weapon that Cotris had that could bring an end to the Time Lords. Correct. Mm-hmm. I suppose what I didn't understand was that. Um, if Cotris was a Time Lord initially before he was re-engineered by the Daleks, why didn't he just infuse her with the necessary particles uh, and then kickstart his own weapon in like five minutes? I understand we need a story that lasts four episodes, but throughout these four episodes, the Doctor and Molly are put in mortal peril every single minute of the episode, where it be, uh, you know, trains derailing in the Great War or... uh, mutant flying dolphins in The Fugitives or Daleks trying to destroy them for the entire four episodes or, you know, even just some of the stuff in X and the Daleks where they're, you know, traversing down a cliff face. Um, Why was the plan to put them in constant mortal peril all the time? And I think (laughs) in highlighting this this flaw, perhaps, uh, this is is where I felt that... um, and I was quite happy to, to ignore this and enjoy the ride. And this is where I felt that uh, it, it had a sort of an, uh, a Rusty Davies aspect to it, um, that, that there, there was a big flaw at the heart of the, uh, of the story, but I didn't mind because the, because the journey was so much fun. Um, and when, when you get to the, to the, to the exposition uh, in uh, the final episode, X and the Daleks, um, on first listen, it, it's quite bamboozling. Um, but mm. not 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 mm. so that you wouldn't ever listen to it again because you thought it was muddy. But you actually sort of get a little bit more from it each time. But then the more you listen to it, the more you sort of you sort of pick out the flaws. But as I say, it, it's such a good ride that that you you really don't mind. And I mean the, the bit in the middle that we alluded to earlier on, where, where um, the Doctor is 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 he's trying to they try to trick him. Uh, well, it's. It's another species that tried to trick him uh, into uh, thinking that the Daleks have reformed themselves. Uh, and he ends up uh, thinking he's on Scaro. But there's flowers everywhere and gardens. And there are these uh, sort of strange tentacled aliens that live there. Uh, and they're very peace- yeah. peaceful. Uh, and it slowly becomes apparent that these are the Daleks. Uh, and uh, they have evolved and they've become peaceful and they've seen the error of their ways. Um, obviously, this is a trick. Uh, but it takes him a while to realise. And that whole concept felt very Russell T. Davies to me. Uh, and, and like you said, it, it felt like it could have been an episode in itself or a story on its own. But it's played out uh, over yeah. a relatively short period of time. Um, and it's, it's great when we find out what's actually happened, that uh, there are a race of people uh, which are essentially sort of galactic mental health team 
who go out and and they find people who have got sort of uh, eyes above their station and uh, delusions of grandeur and uh, and they think that they're the most important thing in the universe they go uh, they're essentially mentally ill uh, and and they have um, like a messiah complex uh, and that they have got hold of the doctor and they think he has this this messiah complex uh, and that his actions because of this complex um, are so damaging to to other races that he needs to be confined and treated. Yeah, I mean, for me, the only way I could reconcile my thoughts about the inconsistencies in the story was that Molly had to travel with the Doctor in the TARDIS and infuse them with the time particles. And she had to keep moving, travelling, time travelling in the TARDIS to kickstart Molly's gene so that the uh, evil Time Lord could use her. That's the only way I could reconcile with myself what is essentially a dream sequence with the Doctor visiting the Daleks on their home planet and they're all friendly and happy and um, rejuvenated friendly Daleks and that's the only way I could reconcile you know, the Doctor suddenly deciding after the Great War atrocities to go and have a surf <laughs> on a planet and get attacked by flying dolphins with lasers. I thought, okay, that was the part of the evil Time Lord's plan to keep the Doctor moving, travelling in the TARDIS with Molly to build up this weapon if you look at these things too closely there are too many massive Mm -hmm. coincidences there are too many massive uh things that i suppose don't make sense to a certain extent well there was discussion at one point that part of the process required bonding between molly and the doctor presumably molly and a time lord which would i think make sense for why it would need to be the doctor instead of this bad guy that abducted her early on uh, in her childhood and if that I mean, that's a little RT. Well, no, actually, that's kind of Stephen Moffat. That's kind of the emotional stuff in there. The emotional stuff is required for this to work, too. But uh, So I suppose you could uh, explain it away there. I think Leeson is right that the ride is so much fun in this story that you can kind of overlook a few of the, the plot points that, that might be able to be picked apart. And, and one of the best parts of the ride is that sequence where they are – you know, on a scarrow with reformed Daleks, it is so much. The da- yeah, the, da- the Daleks are nannies. The Daleks are laughing. Mm. The Daleks are polite, um, and it, it's so unique and such a different perspective on them. What's that on top of the metal bits? I don't believe it. What is it? Flowers. Oh, ay, beautiful they are. A Dalek city garlanded with flowers. This is bonkers. playing flowers on the buildings. Molly, keep on your guard. This just isn't right. Look at that. What's that? We have begun rebuilding. That is our health and welfare structure. Health and welfare? Why would... What's it made of? It looks ceramic, delicate. Correct. This way, if you please. If I please? What are you up to? You collapsed. We fear for your health. This just isn't going to wash. You know, let's just cut to the chase. Tell me what you're up to and never mind all your flowers and playgrounds and beautiful ceramic towers. It is beautiful, you're right. Which is why it couldn't have been built by Daleks. (laughs) Daleks laughing. What is going on here? This way, please. Well, Doctor, 
What do we do? Don't trust them. Don't trust them an inch. But I'm thinking, maybe there are bad Daleks. And good Daleks. Trust me, there are only bad Daleks. I don't know what's going on here or who these poor children are, but I intend to find out. Plus, there's some very interesting thematic stuff happening where Molly Molly is convinced. I mean, she hasn't met the Daleks before this you know, story. So she's a little more willing to believe that they could reform than the Doctor is. But she, she makes this parallel between what's happening with the Daleks and between the Germans and, and the Allies back there in World War One, and, and she points out that as she was nursing these injured soldiers, she was thinking about the parallel on the German side, that there were their girls nursing German soldiers who were thinking about the atrocities that were being committed against, against the Germans. And isn't there a point where, you know, there's this kind of parallel between the sides and where if one person can be sick of war and ready to end it, couldn't the other side be sick of war and ready to end it? She says, how can you ever yeah. know? How can one person ever know what another believes? And it's a very interesting way of playing with, you know, what the Daleks are, what humans are, can we change, can they change? Um, very sophisticated exploration of those ideas. On my first listen to, the, to this sequence, I, mean, I was enjoying it so much that I actually became convinced. I, I, I bought into it. I bought into this idea that, you know, that why can't the Daleks change? And I was a little worried that maybe maybe this wasn't going to be a dream sequence and uh, and this was going to be the case. But at the same time, I was enjoying it. And it's all, all the way throughout, as soon as the Doctor uh, is aware of himself in this situation, he steadfastly refuses to believe that, that it can be the case and you have these wonderful scenes as you say Michelle um, where the, the doctor is saying look they are evil that's it you know they will never reform they cannot reform uh, and you're thinking well yeah well, well why not um, uh, and, and it, it just throw up these wonderful moral questions uh, as to you know is the doctor is the doctor just as unable to change uh, his outlook on on the Daleks as the Daleks are as he's saying, unable to change their um, their you know, their core being uh, and uh, you know, their motivation to to be the supreme beings and, and go around exterminating everything in the universe. And it's it's a wonderful, and I think it only lasts about ten minutes, but it it feels like it could be a, a, a story in itself. Yeah, I I think one thing that works for this story really well is what we talked about earlier: the episodic nature, the almost four individual adventures that we have in this four-part story that while there's that dark eyes theme running across it you can listen to each one individually i think that's something that really works for this that i I suppose to a certain extent you can almost gloss over some of the inconsistencies in the plot and the what ifs and the what's going on type of uh, questions because each episode is its own story that can be listened to individually if if you delve too deeply, Dark Eyes starts to fall apart a little bit. But I think one thing that Dark Eyes has going for it is some fantastic performances all across the board. Like you said before, Leeson, Paul McGann is fantastic in this. He has never been better as the Doctor, even though it's a very new Doctor for him. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I mean, for me, I've, I've listened to this twice, and I still enjoyed it both times, even though I still had questions at the end. That even while we're recording, have only been partly answered. Well, I have a question for you guys. There, there's an aspect of this that's been niggling at the back of my mind as well, kind of like you had, Trev. The, the whole story is about hope and is about trying to restore some hope to the Eighth Doctor. And it hinges on that that first scene that you mentioned, Leeson, that you love so much, um, where Straxus comes and essentially gives 
the Eighth Doctor some sort of hope to carry on. In fact, between the the, the very dark scene in the TARDIS where, where the Doctor is willing to take a pickaxe to the console mm. to try and accomplish what he's doing, <laughs> um, and and the very next time we see him is on the battlefield singing uh, the, the Tipperary song. And it, you never hear the full conversation. We know that he's been given the mission to try and find this girl or save the girl. I mean, the implication is that, that the challenge to save the girl is enough to give him enough hope to carry on. And I I was never fully convinced by that because he's just failed to save such a despair when, when this thing starts that, oh, we'll go try again. I just That was one part I was never quite convinced on. How did that spark him enough to go into the battlefield being being upbeat again i think for me um at the beginning of this the mcgann doctor is a man without a mission he's a doctor without a mission and one thing that the doctor has always done he's always had something to do you know whether it be save universes or save companions or do whatever for me one thing about the doctor is he's always happy when he's doing something you know whether it be saving the world or saving the universe and while perhaps uh Straxus's uh comment about giving him hope isn't perhaps as i don't know as fulfilled as one would like it to be i think it gives the doctor enough that it gives him a new mission hmm. it gives him a new purpose in life go find this woman go save the universe go go make a difference keep busy do stuff stop wandering to the end of the universe and you know crying into your warm milk each night get out there and keep doing what you're doing because you're doing it very very well and that's what the universe needs and we almost have um, some parallels with with the new series and the way the new series has taken the doctor in that um we see we see how how perhaps how dark he can be when he hasn't got anything to fight for, when he hasn't got anything to occupy himself. Uh, and that scene where, as you say, Michelle, he's, he's, he's smashing the console with a pickaxe in order to get what he wants. Um, and almost having, well, he is having uh, having a breakdown. Uh, and, and again, very convincingly played by, by Paul McGann. We, we see, for the first time, I think, in Big Finish, you know... W- the, the devil finds a work for idle hands, you know, and the doctor's hands, when when they're idle, you know, what could he do, and um, what does he do to to occupy himself? And is the reason he does all these things and he travels with humans, like the tenth doctor, is to is to, is to temper this side of himself? It, it's interesting, and maybe yeah, maybe that ongoing quest to save the girl and save the universe is what he needs. That boy, the parallels between. This story and what we saw in the latest series, Series 7B, are, are astonishing. You already mentioned how how like Clara, uh, Molly is. I mean, she's she's got this strange connection with the TARDIS. She's you know there are times when she can translate and times that she can't from the TARDIS. There, um, she's a mystery, and the Doctor's never quite certain if she's a weapon or if she's a companion. And there's that going on. Mm. And then we talked about names when we started this discussion. Did you catch the part where, of course, again, big spoiler, Straxus becomes Cotrus, and there's this great passage where Cotrus tells Straxus that, uh, you know, I'm the result of you, and when I regenerated, I was disgusted by you, and mm. I couldn't even bear to keep your name. Mm. And I was like, wow, wow, that's, it's amazing. Given that this came out in November, this must have been being developed, well, I would imagine this was developed a little earlier than what we saw mm. in, in 7B, and no reason that 
that Moffat and Briggs would know what each other is doing, but the parallels, and again, the doctor getting over having lost companions, and, and is he going to mope and, and be sad and dismal, or is he going to carry on by investigating the mystery of a new girl? Just just extraordinary, the parallels. And, of course, both series have flying dolphins with lasers. Mm-hmm. I mean, the parallels are amazing. This is not the first time that there, that there have been parallels between <laughs> uh, Big Finish and, and, and the new series. I mean, uh, there's uh, the explicit one, which uh, is Dalek, which was uh, originally a Big Finish play, which was reworked by the, by the author with, with consent. There's, there's the One Doctor, which... Um, you know, may or may not have uh, have been uh, turned into the the next Doctor, um, and there are quite often themes that pop up. And I, I've I've often sort of found myself idly wondering whether they're whether these are done with, with consent or whether you know either consciously or subconsciously these ideas sort of feed into the minds of whoever's writing uh, for the TV series and and things are, are borrowed. Um, and I wonder how it feels for the, the writers at Big Finish uh, to, to, to see these uh, ideas, whether, whether they think, oh, oh that's nice, they, they've used our idea, or whether they sort of think, well, we can't say anything because the BBC grants are, are licensed to, to produce these audio dramas, so let's not kick up a fuss. But I wonder if it does stick in their craw sometimes. You know, it's interesting. When it comes to telling stories and telling specifically Doctor Who stories, I think Nicholas Briggs is one of the best there is. I think he grasps this character and the psyche of the character and the different different aspects of the character better than just about anyone out there. Uh, kind of to sum up my feelings of, of Dark Eyes, one of my favorite things is that he goes for the big concepts. He, you know, it's about hope, but it's also about despair. It's about, you know, fear and bravery. It's about war and death and guilt and sacrifice. And the, these these big picture ideas, these universal concepts are the things that, that we human beings have been wrestling with ever since there were human beings. And when you look at the great literature throughout history, those are the themes that we come back to again and again and again to explore. I think Nick Briggs does those better than... As as well as or better than than just about any other Doctor Who writer I've I've ever seen. I mean, boy, if you were looking for a successor to a showrunner for the show, um, admittedly he doesn't have the TV production experience. But I, someday my fantasy would be to see Nicholas Briggs in the showrunner seat for for the TV production of Doctor Who because he he gets this character and he gets the heart of the show. And you know what? I'd put my money on it being his fantasy too. That gravity well is coming, I tell you. That gravity well is coming. <laughs> Dark Eyes is a fantastic big finish play. I mean, I mean despite Anne Eagles here today, I think um, Dark Eyes is an enthralling three-plus hours of big finish audio and is definitely worth your time to purchase as a you know, download or CD. It comes in a very nice CD case from what mm. I've seen online. Um, some wonderful artwork on each of the individual episodes. Um, you know, you get to see the new McGann costume in all its glory. Uh, and it comes in a wonderful uh, uh, cardboard wraparound as well. So, um, you know, for those that are still in love with the physical media of CD, then uh, give it a crack because it, it's really, really good and it's, it's a very worthwhile purchase. But, uh, yeah, uh, Dark Eyes is a thumbs up for me, definitely. Gosh, we've just spent three and a half epic hours with the Eighth Doctor. Maybe it's time to to step back a little and and return to the Seventh Doctor uh, with another episode from our Seventh Heaven series, listening to what Stephen Elsden thought of his very first encounter with the Seventh Doctor. This one, uh, I believe, has Ian and Stephen talking about Silver Nemesis and Greatest Show in the Galaxy. 
You are merely another Time Lord! Oh, Davros. I am far more than just another Time Lord. Time Lord. This whole area is crawling with armed extraterrestrials, and they are hostile. Same as ever, eh, Brigadier? And today I'm here with Stephen again for part four of our Seventh Heaven series where we're looking at the Sylvester McCoy era. This week we're at the second half of season 25, so we've got Sylvan Nemesis and Greatest Show in the Galaxy to look forward to. Indeed, yes, lovely to be here, Ian, and uh, I understand that we're both uh, first-time viewers of both of these shows. So yes, uh... I'm actually joining you now because, <laughs> as I think in, in your last part with James, you alluded to the problems with the Happiness Patrol and the Candyman in particular. As a teenager, the Candyman was where I gave up on the show, yeah. and I actually never saw any of the episodes after that until basically today when I went back and revisited them. So, yes, I was a new watcher of these as well. So we're both in a very similar boat right mm, now. Good, good. <laughs> so appropriately enough, in this 50th anniversary year, the, the first one we're talking about is Silver Nemesis, the 25th anniversary yes, story. Uh, silver so, is the 25th uh, symbol, isn't it? You know, indeed. So. I could listen to them all afternoon. And so we shall. Have you seen this? Charlton has picked up three points. This is my... Favourite kind of jazz, straight blowing. I hate people whose alarms go off during gigs. I'll see this ourselves. See a reminder. Well, go on then. Well, obviously, at this precise moment, it's a reminder us to change course for another destination. Where's that? I've forgotten. Oh, we'll have to go back and find out. Oh, Professor! No. So, what did you think of the return of the Cybermen? Well, I have to say, I mean, much as I love the Daleks, I have a very, very soft spot. Well, maybe that should be a hard spot for the Cybermen. So I was delighted to see them coming up and uh, doing their own uh, rendition of, of Remembrance of the Daleks. I mean, they get all their show-stopping moments uh, um, that, that fans uh, have grown to know, know and love. I, I really enjoyed Silver Nemesis, and I don't know if that puts me out on a limb, but <laughs> maybe it does. So many things to enjoy in this. I mean, I thought the, um, the, the the period setting at the beginning, I mean, I'm a massive Kubrick fan, and there did seem to me to be one or two shots in here which were, were filmed using natural lighting. And I thought, wow, that's just an amazing little touch to use in a, in a, in a TV show in, in the 80s, you know, something that Kubrick was modelling when he was making Barry Lyndon back in the, uh, in the early 70s. Um, I thought there were some great period characters. I thought the idea of bringing them forward in time into the, into the present day was amazing. Um, having the uh, having the Nazis in here, having the having the, the Cybermen in there, you know, there was a, there, everything was thrown together, but it actually made a very very satisfying whole. I thought this this adventure. Did you? It, it's certainly a lot going on with this. I've always thought there was a certain air of evil of the Daleks about it, with a time traveling piece and from sort of the past and coming forward, and a similar sort of setup to that. Yes, that, that, that's that's very true. I mean, it's not an original idea, certainly this. Uh, um, this idea. I mean, uh, in fact, uh, if you think some, something like Cat Weasel with his uh, tri time travelling, you could almost imagine Cat Weasel <laughs> or the, all the visitors. If you've ever seen that French, uh, the French film about the, the time travelling uh, knights, you know, there's various little, uh, little little parallels that you can draw from uh, from popular culture. I think, but uh, it, you know, from a show that, that that is founded on on the ability to time travel, I think it's quite quite amazing to see other, other characters doing it. And I have to say, the um, the time travel sequence with uh, with Lady uh, PN40 and her, her companion. Time it was actually genuinely terrifying for me watching that. 
uh, when they're in that little room and they're not quite sure what's going to happen and you know is this going to work right and all the all the the, 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 the wibbly wobbly uh, lighting effects and I just thought, oh you know actually watching it today I thought yeah it's genuinely terrifying because you just got this sense that you know one little thing wrong and they're going to be uh, you know scattered to the uh, to, to the four corners of time and then they arrive in a tea shop yes <laughs> <laughs> you already alluded to the fact that this was the Cybermen's Remembrance of the Daleks an awful lot is made of the fact that this is supposedly the exact same story just with Cybermen um, I don't think there are substantial di- uh, differences. I mean, clearly, both in both stories, the, uh, the, the, you know, the the enemy are there looking for an artifact. The Doctor's doing his best to uh, to, to keep them away from a from, from an artifact. Remembrance of the Daleks, as I said last time, you know, I think it was it was a real love letter to the fans. I mean, going right back to the to the beginning of the show in '63 in Trotter's Lane. Yes, this has got Cybermen. It's got some other um, elements. I think that you know that, that, that fans would 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 hope to see. It nods into the future. I mean, the Doctor wearing a fez that was a, that was <laughs> astonishing. <laughs> but um, it's wearing its fan element less fully on its, its shoulders. It's got a bit more room to breathe. This show. I mean, much I love Remembrance. I think there's a there's a bit more fun in in Silver Nemesis than it was in Remembrance. Like you, I've always had a soft spot or a hard spot, as you said, for the Cybermen. I, they're, they're one of my favourites. However, I did feel in the later part of the, the, the classic era, they lost a lot of their menace as they became increasingly easy to kill. And for me, they, they reached the, 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 the pit of that when Ace is knocking them out with gold coins and a catapult. Yeah. Did, did, did that, <laughs> do you feel that detracted from the menace of the, the famous Cybermen? Um, maybe maybe a little bit. I, I I think the sequence towards the end of this uh, this adventure, where we're in the in the warehouse on the upper gantry, and there, there's several Cybermen all sort of you know, closing on, uh, on 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 Sophie Aldred again, was was a genuinely frightening scene. I mean, it it was rather similar, of course, to the scene in the school corridor in Remembrance with the three uh, the, the three Daleks that are all uh, um, centering on her. But uh, the Cybermen design, the, the the concept of the Cybermen, I think, is, is still frightening enough as a villain, regardless of how he. I mean, you know, Daleks, as we know, you know, run up a flight of stairs, and you've seen the back of the Dalek. Well, until <laughs> until uh, until Remembrance, of course. But, you know, they've always had their weak spot. Uh, I mean, the Cybermen. You know, Adric's uh, Adric's badge has killed off. Uh, you know, Cybermen before before now. So the idea that gold coins and a catapult could do it, I mean, is consistent with the law of the Cybermen. But uh, for me, I think the, the the concept of Cybermen, the dehumanized humans inside the Cyberman shell, is for me much more of a of a of a terrifying. Uh, idea than the wizard Thal inside the, the Dalek case. To round out where we started off, do you think this was a good anniversary special for the Doctor? Yes, I, I think so. Um, I think if you'd taken... Uh, I mean, you, you needed something in between Remembrance and Silver Nemesis, but I think you would probably agree with me that Happiness Patrol wasn't the <laughs> uh, the meat uh, that you wanted in that sa- in sandwich, but uh, um, perhaps if this had gone to a three-storey... Uh, um, season, it would be a much uh, much more better uh, remembered season, I think. That's probably a good time to move along to the last part of this season, which was Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Now, welcome, folks. I'm sure you'd like to know we're at the start of one big circus show. There are acts that are cool and acts that are made. Some acts some actual days, acts of all kinds, and you can count on that from folks that fly to disappearing acts. There are lots of surprises for the family at the greatest show in the galaxy. So many strange surprises, I'm prepared to bet whatever you've seen before. You ain't seen nothing yet. Well, this uh, started... Uh, I mean, 
in quite an interesting way. I mean, at the very beginning, I was put in mind of uh, of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. It had that sort of vibe. I mean, you got these these weird uh, vehicles being driven up the uh, the beach, um, and the the idea again, the idea about the um, uh, you know the circus and what's going on in that circus, I thought was a genuinely creepy idea. Let down a little bit, I think this this show by the production, and I know that I think they had some production problems. They ended up shooting a lot of this in the car park, I think. Um, obviously, the beach scenes weren't outside Television <laughs> Centre, but um, you know, there's some there's some cheesy robots in here. There's rather too much use of of running through um, uh, gauze-lined corridors in, instead of having actually compelling uh, compelling drama. But the idea of what's going on in that circus tent, um, the family that are sat there in the in the shadows, munching their popcorn and waiting for who knows what um, you know were, were, were genuinely uh, creepy and uh, you know the resolution of what they actually were um, was, was, was a real surprise. My viewing of, of this was starting to be coloured by my experience of the seventh doctor on the big Finnish audios because there have been various nods to um, the gods of Ragnarok for instance in the, uh, in the in the audios and I started to see elements of of that feeding in so that was starting to colour my experience even though it's the first time I've seen greatest show I felt that some of what was going on I actually understood a bit better but I thought there was, uh, you know, there was a lot to enjoy in this uh, in this adventure. Nowhere near the the the, the, um, uh, the scale of Remembrance or uh, a Silver Nemesis, but still a very very solid story. I thought it got weaker as it moved away from the central circus area. So when you had the the guy with the winged helmet on the dune buggy and the the strange woman with the the food stall, yes, uh, and out, out with then the one that really I had a problem with was the bus conductor robot. Who I thought was a recycled candy man almost. <laughs> yes. it, it, there was a lot of similarity there, I thought. My notes say another cheesy robot. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but within the circus itself, I thought it was very strong, and particularly the, the, the central clown, whose name escapes me right now. I thought that was a fabulously creepy performance that he did. It, it's so easy to just go over the top with the clown motif, but there was a real menace. An underplayed menace, I thought, to the way that was done. Mm. And indeed, the um, uh, the ringmaster character as well. I thought, you know, between them, they they really did make a very very creepy, uh, you know, central core to the to, to the to the villains of this piece. So there were a lot of supporting characters. I mean, I thought it was quite interesting with Captain Cook and his companion uh, Mags, isn't it? I think um, the name of his companion, because I thought that that was that was actually alluding quite a lot to the relationship of the Doctor and Ace. But then I think that goes a bit over the top. You've got the character of the the, the, the boy with the glasses who comes in, and I thought, is this trying to be a reflection of how you know the producers saw Doctor Who fans at that that point in time? And that that, that rubbed a bit badly with me. I thought that was a pretty poor bit of satire. Clearly, a dig at obsessive fans. It's almost worse from making it a dig at a teenage obsessive fan. If they'd done it as a middle-aged guy, then yeah. I, nobody would be a bit ouchy, but you could live like with us. it. But I think actually digging at the kids, I thought, was actually very, very poor. And yeah. it's the only reason that character exists in the story is to have a dig. And I thought, that's, that's a bit bad. Some of the cliffhangers were very poor. I mean, the first episode cliffhanger was, shall we go in? what was that all about (laughs) yes i don't think i don't think there was one cliffhanger that would have necessarily made you uh, tune in you know next next week if you uh, hadn't been enjoying the uh, the episode there was nothing that made you think oh i've got to find out how that uh, how that turns out and they were followed Um, by quite long follow-ons a whole minute of of catch-up and i almost mm. wonder if they restructured it from a three to a four or something and and were struggling to find natural cliffhanger points yes i mean you do find that with some of these uh, some of some of these seasons actually that the some some of them the next episode you've only got about sort of 10 seconds introduction from the previous uh, previous episode as you say some of them you've got almost like a whole scene i think the length of this was you know worked well 
it built to a very very I thought good good climax with the uh, the, the gods of Ragnarok and and the idea of of McCoy's Doctor having to play a circus act obviously was playing to to the actor's strengths you know he was a a natural clown a natural performer and I thought that you know they they, they made good good work of that in the story. So overall, season twenty-five better or worse than season twenty-four? On the whole, I think better as a, a Doctor Who season i still really like season 24 for the depth of the science fiction behind the stories but as a fan there was a great deal to enjoy in in season 25 and one hopes that we're going to get as much to enjoy in the 50th year well thank you very much Stephen. thank you well thank you Stephen. thank you and i'm still wondering why you uh have released these reviews in that order you do realize the australian order for that Hmm. season is the far superior one with Happiness Patrol ending the season. Mm. It fixes up all sorts of continuity errors with badges on Ace's jacket and all sorts of stuff like that. I, I still don't understand why you British people hang on to this weird way to uh, order that particular season of McCoy. Now, being uh, the uh, British contingent on the podcast in this episode, uh, I would uh, just like to point out that the, the weird way is the British way. There we have it officially verified by U of K resident, the British version of that particular season, is wrong. Australians are right. Let's move on. But I think that does bring us to the end of another amazing, fantastic, superlative Doctor podcast. As always, it's been a pleasure to sit here in the camper van with Michelle and Lisa. And guys, you've excelled yourself yet again. I don't know how you keep coming up with the goods each week. You make me look good, I tell you. And may I say, Michelle, you have wonderful hair. <laughs> well, why, thank you very much. And I'm thrilled to discover that you're really not just a figment of my imagination. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> what a strange imagination you have, Michelle. But wonderful hair. Although Leeson does put some weird ideas in my head occasionally, but he certainly is very real. So we are at the end of another show. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks for continuing to download our podcast. It's lovely to have your uh, ears alongside our mouths every single week here on the DWP. And we look forward to that same situation next week where we'll be talking, well, who knows? I don't want to spoil it, really. Uh, I, I hate spoilers. So you'll just have to tune in next week and find out what's going on. So thank you, Michelle. Thank you. And thank you, Lisa. Thank you very much, Trevor. Those beautiful eyes of yours. Oh, oh, Trevor, I've been waiting for this moment for so long. (sighs) Let's just sign off and get into staring into each other's eyes, Lisa. Bye-bye, all. Bye-bye. Cheerio. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter facebook and via the doctor who podcast forums thank you for listening take care this is really the first series of the mcgann audios where we have the new eighth doctor remember how we uh what the heck was that Uh, a motorbike ah okay (laughs) Remember uh, uh, probably 18 months No motorbikes in the camper van, Lisa. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) No no screech marks on the carpet, please. It takes too much to get out. Being uh, the uh, British contingent on the podcast in this episode, uh, I would uh, just like to point out that the the weird way is the British way. (laughs) There we go. We have it verified official... (coughs) Sorry, I choked on a pee there. Um. (laughs) There... (laughs) (sighs) 